From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a show of expeditions to space, to a Colorado ghost town, but first to the Arctic, where things are changing fast because of climate change. The Arctic is opening up to resource development, to tourism, to cargo transportation, and so many other things that affect so many different types of people. Then, a drive on a steep dirt road to the ghost town of Nevadaville, which comes alive once a month for a secret meeting. It's like living in the past, but also communing with the past. You're not just like, oh yeah, look at all this old stuff. It's like you're a part of it. Plus, two of NASA's newest astronauts. They're both from Colorado. One's a fighter pilot, the other a geologist. And they both want to go to the moon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Scientist Matthew Shoup spent the last several months essentially tied to a massive ice flow in the Arctic, a mile and a half wide. He was aboard a research ship, slept there at night, then hopped onto the ice during the day to conduct climate change research. Keep in mind, it's dark in the Arctic, round the clock this time of year. Shoup is a cloud expert at CU Boulder, And this project, the largest polar expedition in history, was largely his brainchild. He's back in Colorado. Hi, Matthew. Howdy. Nice Nice to to see see you. you. How do you get onto an ice flow from a ship? I'm just curious. Well, directly from the ship, we can walk down the gangway right onto the ice. Is it also true that you had a crane to move people onto the ice flow? We did. Initially, before we set up the gangway and all the other details, we would crane each other or crane ourselves down onto the ice in these big buckets that are hoisted uh, on a big winch. Multiple teams were conducting experiments on this flow. Certainly. We've got uh, 100 people there, about 60 of which are of the science party, and we have all kinds of groups out on the ice at any given time. Uh, Help me understand what it is like to walk on an ice flow. Is that a stable surface? It is stable. You can't really tell. It's just like walking out in the snow here in Colorado. Oh, you never fell through. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> well, I can't say I never fell through. Uh, it does happen. There are cracks in the ice. Uh, there's open ocean there. The ice can freeze back, but it's thin. And so if you step in the wrong place, well, then you'll get a wet foot. Are there animals on ice flows? There are animals out there. Polar bears being the biggest draw, if you will. We saw a number of polar bears. They would come through camp. Unfortunately for us as scientists, we have to uh, minimize our contact there. So we'll get back on the ship really quick and have to work to manage the polar bear situation. Um, more recently, we had a fox come through camp, an Arctic fox running around, and they actually like to chew on cables. So unfortunately, took out some of the communication cables. <laughs> I think anyone with a house cat will, and an iPhone cord will understand an animal that chews <laughs> Perhaps, on cables. Yes. Okay. What is the story you tell when someone says, welcome back, how was the trip? What are you most eager to tell them? Uh, wow, it's a little overwhelming to come back, actually, um, to integrate with all these people. We're really cut off there. but And, um, and I, light. And light, yes, as well. <laughs> That's also uh, pretty interesting to come back to. There are kind of two different sides of my story. You know, one is this story of excitement. You know, it's just a thrill to go out to the Arctic pretty much any time. It's so amazing out there, all these great scenes. And Mosaic in general, this project was a manifestation of a decade or more of work. And so it's just, that's a lot of excitement coming together. There's some pride there. There's a lot of pride there. And just, you know, seeing all the different international participants working together on a shared science goal, that makes me really happy and and excited. The other side of the coin, though, is an exhausted side. I'm really tired. We worked really hard out there. And Mm. it was day after day after monotonous day of 
hard work out on the ice and exhaustion and limited sleep and, as you said, no sunlight, so perhaps a limited energy supply at some level. So, yeah, I come back a little bit depleted. You've set a lovely scene for us, and I want to get to the kind of the import of the work. You, as I said, specialize in clouds. What is it that you want to know when you're on an ice floe? Well, clouds are a part of a, a big, complicated puzzle. I mean, ultimately, we're there to understand why the Arctic sea ice is declining. That's kind of our big motivating factor. And clouds play a role in that, as do many other processes. So from my perspective, I'm interested in clouds. I'm interested in the variability in the atmosphere and how that affects energy transfer to the sea ice and how that ultimately will lead to perhaps melting in the sea ice or change in the sea ice. And thus a rising of sea levels? No, sea ice is actually floating on the ocean. And so melting sea ice is not going to change sea levels. Sea levels are affected by things like glaciers and ice sheets that melt. Got it. But there are clearly concerns if they melt. Certainly, there are big effects. So ice, as we all know, is white. It reflects a lot of sunlight. And ocean, open ocean, is dark. It absorbs sunlight. So as we decrease the amount of ice in the Arctic, the whole exchange of energy is different. The, the amount of sunlight that gets absorbed by the surface increases as we have more open ocean. And it warms things up and it melts more ice. And there's this feedback that kind of drives this declining sea ice even faster. A vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And Mm. it's really important for us to understand those kind of feedbacks as we think about how the Arctic is changing and what that means for the rest of the globe. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with scientist Matthew Shoup of Boulder. He's just back from the Arctic and a massive international research project aboard a ship there and an ice flow. I have heard the Arctic sometimes referred to as the kind of air conditioning for the planet. I gather that's why this is so important in Colorado, for instance, many miles away. Yeah, you know, the Arctic is part of a global system, and the global system affects all of us. And so as the Arctic changes, the exchange of energy changes for our global system. And that's something we're out there to study is how is the changing Arctic, the declining sea ice, affecting energy transfer in the Arctic, and how does that then transfer itself or relate itself to what's happening at lower latitudes. Our own weather patterns. Our own weather patterns. It's a a really big question. There's a lot of debate right now in the scientific community. We need to understand the different kind of steps in the process. So right now we're we're studying those details to kind of sort through that puzzle uh, and really understand how does it affect our weather at lower latitudes. Well, do you come with answers? Uh, Well, from our trip right now, it's mostly been hey, let's get this whole expedition up and running. Um, So we don't have a whole lot of discoveries yet, although I would say that, you know, we are experiencing an ice situation up there in the Arctic that's different. It's changing. It's so thin. And that was something I would say was unexpected for us. Even though we knew it was thin ice, it kind of surprised us at how thin it really is. And so that's an exciting part of what we're doing now. Exciting. That's an interesting word for it. It's supposed to daunting or depressing. Well, it's not depressing at all. It's a challenge. It was more challenging than we anticipated, but I view it as an opportunity because this is the Arctic now. This is what we're there to study. It's this thin ice that happens to be really challenging to work on. How does that affect the animals? I am not a biologist, but there are people there at Mosaic that are studying the ecosystem and they're studying the animals, mostly the very small animals in the ocean. We think it does, right? We, we hypothesize that it does actually affect them. Uh, as the ice declines, more sunlight can penetrate into the ocean, which would affect the productivity of the ocean waters. And that will feed throughout the, the food chain. Here's what's fascinating to me. The U.S. government is one of the major supporters of this effort. On the one hand, 
that would be encouraging to folks who are concerned about climate change. On the other hand, there are mixed messages coming from the government about the highest leader's commitment to fighting climate change. Can you square that for us? Well, I think that in the end, we need to study our climate system. Whether or not we need to change climate change, I, I don't know about that part. But we do need to understand the system so we can make wise choices. And I think that you know people within our government certainly understand that. Um, the Arctic is opening up to resource development, to tourism, to cargo transportation, and so many other things that affect so many different types of people. And, and really, we need to understand the change that's happening there so that we can operate in the Arctic. When you're on an ice floe, is it moving very fast? Is it drifting? It is drifting. And we are following what's called the transpolar drift. We kind of knew where the ice was going to go. It kind of moves around depending on the winds and other uh, factors. But yeah, it drifts. It could be up to, you know, five miles a day or even more than that. So how do you know kind of where you are if you're always moving? Was that a challenge with, with GPS? You know, I'm thinking of that little sign on the mall marquee that says you are here. That kept moving for you. It does. The whole frame of reference keeps drifting. And we have all these different assets distributed out on the ice, right? I have these remote stations that we built here in Boulder that are 15 kilometers away from the ship. And the whole thing is moving. And we know the GPS coordinates now, but now we're going to try to fly a helicopter to that location. And now the site's gone. It's moved away. And so it is a challenge actually to understand where we are and kind of negotiate and navigate this moving frame of reference. How did you choose which ice flow to be on? I mean, there are any number, right? There are, yeah. Oh, we're, we were traveling through ice flows for uh, many days, and we actually had two different vessels out there looking for ice flows and testing them. We'd stay with a flow for a couple of days and make a lot of thickness measurements and a lot other evaluation tools to kind of figure out. Is this a place we want to is stay? Is this where we want to stay? Is this going to be stable enough for us? And, and then in the end, we came together and had a, a big meeting of the minds to kind of make a decision. You know, which flow did we like the most out of all those flows that we saw? Did you name it? <laughs> well, you know, it has some names. This particular ice flow has this central core that's really thick. And we liked that thickness because it's stability. Uh-huh. And, you know, when we first went in it to explore it, uh, I came back and said, wow, that's really a fortress in there. And so we called it the fortress. The fortress. Just, you know, ridges of ice everywhere, really thick. And, and we're clinging to that for stability. And then we're venturing off from there out into the thinner ice that's actually, you know, the more interesting ice for us. We know it's dark on the fortress this time of year. How's the weather besides cold? Well, it's cold for sure, but it's also, you know, windy. We get a lot of blowing snow. Um, We actually had a very interesting storm that happened in the middle of November that posed some big challenges for us. The winds blow, the ice moves a little faster, and it actually started to break up a lot. The the ice flow did? The ice flow right through the fortress it did. Am I picturing... The kind of crack in the earth, you know, in like bad earthquake movies? (laughs) It is kind of like that. Yeah, a crack opened up. Actually, right on my commute out to my research station, it opened up. And then over the course of a few days, it kind of played out in this really interesting dynamic scene where the crack widened and then came back together and then sheared sideways. And in the end, after the whole thing settled down after about a week, um, our research station had moved a couple hundred meters and was in a different orientation relative to the ship. This is a bit of a choreography by nature, I suppose. But that means that the fortress, though fortress-like, is also quite fragile. It is. It is still composed of ice, and it did break. And, you know, actually, after that event, we were forming a new fortress as well because the thinner ice had all crumpled together into these big, gnarly ridges that looked an awful lot like the fortress before. So I think we're kind of in the middle of developing this dynamic ice flow. 
Could there be a change so dramatic that the mission is aborted? Well, we certainly hope not. Uh, That's why we have the ship there, because a lot of our science equipment is on the ship. But we do have a lot of equipment out on the ice, and the ice is very thin. And so come next summer, when the ice starts to melt and melt ponds start to form, things could get very thin. And I'm, I'm quite certain that some of our activities will be limited by that. Hopefully not all of them. You'll be back on that ice flow as the mission winds down, correct? Mm-hmm. Is there any aspect of that life that you miss? In other words, are, is there anything you're eager to go back to? Oh, I, certainly. It was actually very hard to leave. It was hard to walk away because I've put so much into it. And now I'm leaving it in the hands of someone else. And that's mm. hard to do. It makes me a little bit nervous, although they're doing great. Thanks for being with us. Sure thing. Matthew Shoup is co-coordinator of the Polar Mission Mosaic, that stands for Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate, naturally. Shoup's an atmospheric scientist at CU Boulder. When we come back, why a Colorado ghost town comes alive once a month, and it isn't because of spirits. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mornings can be stressful. Wake up, make breakfast, get yourself ready to take on the day. But there's an easy way to add some relief to your morning routine. Hi, I'm David Ginder, morning host on CPR Classical, here to help you start your day with beauty and ease. All you have to do is ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. Or to catch up on the news you've missed, say, play CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime, hands-free, with your smart speaker. I went for a drive recently towards one of Colorado's gambling towns. All right, I have climbed up the Central City Parkway. I'm at the sign that says, Welcome to Historic Central City. But I'm not continuing. I'm going to make a left to a town called Nevadaville. Oh, wow, this is a steep climb up. I'm in second gear and barely climbing. Passing the Coeur d'Alene Mine and Memorial, and the road just became dirt. Nevadaville, as you can probably tell, is an old mining town, far, though, from its 19th century heyday. But once a month, the population surges when the Masons come to town to meet at a historic lodge here. They claim they're the only Masons to meet in a ghost town. I am Patrick Day. I am the Worshipful Master, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Nevada Lodge No. 4 here in Nevadaville, Colorado. We are standing in Nevadaville Road at the heart of town. Oh, it's a traffic jam. There's one car. (laughs) And this is City Hall and the fire department in front of us. Right. The joke is, is when uh, when we... We moved back into the old building. We put on the insurance that we were right across the street from the fire department. And then the uh, adjuster came up here and said, no. (laughs) Not a functioning fire department. (laughs) So what is a mason? Well, let's go inside and I'll tell you all about it. Oh, let's do. Let's go over here into the lodge room itself where we meet. Is that an old fireplace burner? Yeah, it's an old pot pot (gasps) belly stove. Oh, my God. Goodness, look at this room. So the wallpaper is original. The wainscoting is original. The uh, ceiling's not, which is a plain white plaster ceiling, but it was collapsing in, and they thought it'd be a good idea to do a nice tin ceiling. We also have bullet holes in the wall. And why is that? Uh, it's because when the building was abandoned, kids used to sit on the hill on the other side of the gully and shoot at things in the town. <laughs> now I'm seeing 
wood chairs, kind of like you'd see in an old auditorium. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's where the members sit. There's a wood stage and a, a beautiful almost wood throne. Yeah, yeah. So there are three principal officers of any Masonic Lodge. The Worshipful Master sits up there. That's uh, you. Right now it is. Um, we change officers every year. I can't stress to folks how old west this room is, but I can imagine that if you were, you know, coming in as a weary traveler, a room like this would feel like quite a respite. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that the effect you're going oh, for? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we do our initiations, you know, sometimes we do courtesy work for other lodges where they'll bring their candidates up. And sometimes those candidates have never seen this room before. And so during your initiation, you're blindfolded. It's pretty typical of most initiatory societies is that you're blindfolded when you come in. But when it comes off, they just, I always hear them always go, wow. Yeah. It's just to, to be in that room during that is just such an experience. The Masons have been around for a really long time. Medieval, right? Medieval roots? Right. Uh, so we start off with the Stone Masons. It's kind of where we grew out of the Stone Masons of antiquity. They were essentially one of a number of guilds. And starting in the 17th century, they started bringing in non-operative Masons. Essentially, you know, these were wealthy people or aristocrats, but were interested in these things they'd hear about the secret ceremonies and secret teachings of the Masons. So, so secret that we actually are not going to be a party to the meeting later, correct? No, we are required to, uh, all business in our meetings has to be conducted in a closed lodge. We have a guy who sits outside the room with a sword during our meetings who guards the lodge. I have to think, for miners back in the day in Nevadaville, this would have been something to aspire to. It definitely was uh, coveted to be a Mason back in those days, uh, not just because it indicated a certain level of wealth and status. Uh, our dues back at the founding of this lodge were $4 a year. Uh, to give you an idea of what that, that was, the average miner made about a dollar a week, so wow. about a month's wage. Uh, but we also are a charitable and benevolent organization. We do a lot of charity. We do scholarships. But we also look after our own members whenever they get into trouble. You know, life happens. Circumstances change. And, you know, back in the old mining days, there was no health insurance. There was no life insurance. There was nothing you could do if you couldn't work. You got sick. And it was nice to have an organization that would look after you and just in case if you died, your family would be taken care of. It is a faith-based organization? It is. Uh, one of the requirements is that you must believe in deity. We don't care what your God is, what you call your God, how many gods there are. It does not matter, just as long as you believe in something higher than yourself. Huh. It's essential in binding yourself and, and at your word. Is it men only? It is, but there are women's Masonic organizations. So my girlfriend's in the Order of Amaranth. That is one of the women's organizations. We also have youth groups. You know, there's the Rainbow Girls and Job's Daughters. So there are Masonic organizations for women as well. How old are you? I am 32. Are you a younger member? I am. <laughs> At least I'm called a younger member. Ah, uh -huh. it's all relative, I suppose. I, I guess. <laughs> there, there is something 
so lovely about a fraternal organization or a sorority in this like digital age. Isn't isn't there something nice it about is, to unplug and actually hang out, talk with guys? Pretty much everybody in the lodge and you, know, you all end up being friends. You know, up here in Nevadaville, we don't get good cell phone reception, so you don't have to worry about guys sitting there playing on their phones and lodge because <laughs> you can't get service. What are you going to do? So hang out. Enjoy yourself. You're in a ghost town. What does that mean to you to be a ghost town lodge? It's like living in the past, but also communing with the past. You're not just like, oh, yeah, look at all this old stuff. It's like you're a part of it. You know, a lot of us will be up here working late and just go, well, I'll just stay the night and sleep up here. So it's like you're living it too, being a part of it. Restoring a place like this for the future to have as well. Thing is, for several decades, the Masons didn't meet here. As you heard, the building was in disrepair, so the meetings took place in Central City. There was even talk of demolishing the place in Nevadaville, but Roy Weingarten wouldn't stand for it. He fought for the restoration and remembers the first meeting after they moved back in, in the 1960s. Well, we had 90 people here that first meeting, and it was quite a thing because this area... Up here, this whole gulch at one time was called the Cradle of Masonry. Matter of fact, there was four lodges that met in this gulch at one time. At the height, there were four Masonic lodges yes. meeting here? Yeah, not in this building, but in the gulch, yeah. in Gregory Gulch. Do you uh, remember being glad that the lodge was back in Nevadaville? Yes, I'll, I'll have to relate a story. We had a secretary that was been secretary for a lot of years. And he's responsible for this lodge not going under during the dry years, you might say. During when they had this boarded up, they had a lot of break-ins because in the area, the hippie area and all that, people would come into these places and anything that was empty, they felt was theirs for the taking to live in. And so he was against opening this because he didn't. He was responsible, and he didn't would be responsible. So mm. I took that responsibility when we reopened the building. Do you still and feel that responsibility today? No, no. <laughs> no I've, I've passed that off. I I made enough trips up here midnight to close up a break in. <laughs> Worshipful Master Patrick Day also had stories of vandalism, and although he uses the term ghost town to describe Nevadaville. He's quick to point out there are houses in the area and people inside them looking out. There's like two full-time residents who actually live here. Two? There's two. There's two people who pretty much live here all year round. Mary, who owns City Hall and the saloon, she and her husband come up here and do a lot of restoration work. So it is pretty busy for a ghost town. And you're vigilant about protecting it. Right. You know, in the past, you know, back in the 50s, people took advantage of this place and Obviously, we seek to restore it. So, yeah, we do want to protect it. It's, it's important to us, and we think it's important to history, and important to Gilpin County. Well, we'll let you get on with the meeting. Thanks for meeting us in Nevadaville. Thank you for dropping by. It was a pleasure. Worshipful Master Patrick Day of Nevada Lodge No. 4. They meet in Nevadaville near Central City once a month and think they're the only Masonic lodge that meets in a ghost town. As much as we wanted to stay for the evening's events, we promised we'd skedaddle and unplug our microphones. Best not mess with the sword guy.
The next people to walk on the moon and perhaps one day travel to Mars just graduated in NASA's latest class of astronauts. Among the 13 are two Coloradans, Matthew Dominic from Wheat Ridge and Jessica Watkins from Lafayette. They rang us up from Houston. Jessica, Matthew, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. Congratulations. Uh, Graduation comes after two years of astronaut boot camp. It's rigorous, and uh, from what I can tell, it includes about a thousand ways to make you throw up. What what was the hardest day you had in basic training, Matthew? You want to start? Uh, I think it. I think the, specifically the hardest part for me in training is uh, every time I show up to Russian and still realize how terrible I am at it. Uh, despite hundreds and hundreds of hours, and I sit there across from my instructor and realize I still can't come up with the right words. You're having to learn Russian, presumably because you could be aboard the International Space Station. Absolutely. Okay. Do you, do you want to give us a phrase that you've managed to learn? I don't know if I want to keep the... Uh, I don't know what if anybody in the world wants to hear my Russian recorded. I do. I do. Yagovoruporuski. <laughs> what does that mean? I, I speak Russian. I speak, okay. I love that you're... Jessica's, Jessica's going, well, you should have added Izik. Yagovoruporuski <laughs> Izik. Jessica, what would that mean if he added that? Uh, it just means I speak Russian language versus speak Russian. Okay. So I love, Matthew, that you don't respond to anything about the physical challenges. It's it's the linguistic ones. Jessica, what was most difficult for you in boot camp? Yeah, well, I certainly share Matthew's struggles in Russian as well. It certainly was learning new languages, both Russian in particular, but also just learning to speak all of the different languages that we kind of have to speak here. Um, I'm speaking a little bit more figuratively, so learning to fly the jets. So there's kind of a pilot speak or pilot language that goes along with that. There's spacewalking. We have a kind of language that goes along with the communications associated with with that training, um, as well as the space station kind of has its own language in terms of acronyms and the names of, of all of the systems on the International Space Station. So there's been a lot of language learning over here. Yeah. Give me an example of the language of spacewalking. Tell me a phrase that you learned and maybe interpreted for us. Putting a local down, for example, means putting the tether that is attached to you, putting the hook down on a handrail that is on the outside of the space station uh, so that you are safe. And that is different from setting up your safety tethers, which connect you back to the airlock as kind of a last resort safety configuration as well. Now, if you misconjugate a verb in Russian, I'm assuming they conjugate verbs. I don't know Russian well enough. Uh, no, No one will die. But boy, you get that tether wrong and lives are in the balance, huh? Yes, absolutely. It's really important to be very exact and very specific um, when you are communicating both with your partner, the person that you are doing the spacewalk with, as well as communicating back to Houston, back to mission control. We all need to be able to you know, have the same words and speak the same language so that we are able to be safe and, and accomplish the mission. All right. Your backgrounds are fascinating. Matthew, you have a, I don't know, a classic resume for an astronaut, a naval officer and test pilot. I think of the author Tom Wolfe. He described the Apollo astronauts as having the right stuff, you know, a combination of smarts and risk taking. Is that still true or do you think the right stuff is different now? 
I think, uh, oh man, that's, that's a little bit of a loaded question there. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, the right stuff is all about being a team member and uh, and and working hard with with a group of people that are dedicated to the mission. And it's it's, it's obviously really cool from a test pilot perspective right now that we have three new spacecraft coming into play, and we get to test those and figure those out and shake those down and, and find all the things that might go wrong with them and, and make sure they're working safe. Um, but the right stuff is about is about being a team player and being a team member. Um, that can contribute to spaceflight and work together to solve problems. We all have different talents in different areas, and that's one of the best parts about being in the office is, is walking around. There, you can find an answer to anything in the office, right? Wikipedia is only so deep, but our <laughs> office has got such a, such a breadth of background I can find the answer to anything. Uh, you mentioned the new spacecraft. This is another Colorado connection because uh, American astronauts are presumably going back to the moon under the Artemis program, and they will fly in the Orion space capsule designed here in Colorado by Lockheed Martin. Uh, Jessica, you're a Stanford grad. You worked on the Mars rover and you have a Ph.D. in geology. As a geologist, what most fascinates you about space, about the potential for the materials we could get in space? Yeah, absolutely. The detail, scientific detail that we would be able to get going back to the moon, getting new samples, um, exploring new areas, particularly the South Pole, and finding uh, resources there is really exciting, both from a scientific and an economic standpoint. So we really look forward to those opportunities. Okay, so the, the moon, right, is the first idea as a kind of jumping off point eventually to get to Mars. Matthew, Jessica, are, are you guaranteed to go to the moon or is that like another winnowing down? Let me just say that your class of 13 came from a pool of 18,000 applicants. But Matthew, are you guaranteed to, to, to go to the moon or to go to the International Space Station? What happens next? Well, I mean, I don't think there's ever any any guarantees in life. Uh, we're happy to support. Jessica and I are both happy to support uh, any mission put in front of us. Uh, we've completed the you know the two years of training here that that gets us the foundation from which to build for any mission we could come to. And and both of us would be happy to go to the International Space Station. Happy to go uh, set up the infrastructure for Artemis that allows us to go to the moon to stay. Uh, all of those are open and eligible for us. I you know I know that Jessica. We talked a little bit about some of the right stuff. Uh, Jessica brings the right stuff and that, you know, she's the geologist that helps me, the aviator, right? And uh, and she helps teach me geology. And then and then she was talking about the lingo earlier, the vernacular of the job. Um, and I get to teach her some of the, you know, the aviation aspects. And that's why it's such a good team aspect. So we're all excited for any mission we could put in front of us. Oh, you're so uh, magnanimous in that answer, Matthew. But you also must have deep desires. What What is your dream? I mean, come on. You, you walk outside and look up at the moon, uh, anybody, and, and, and you just can't tell me that you just want to go walk all over that thing. It's incredible. <laughs> I have a telescope at home, and I, you stare into the craters and think and imagine it. And, you know, and I, yes, I'm an aviator test pilot background, and I'm going to very carefully admit that I actually enjoyed geology classes with Jessica and all the instructors as we learned about all the rocks and how the moon came to be. It's actually incredibly fascinating. Uh, it is tough to admit, and I'll take I'll get trouble for it later. Get <laughs> get some rousing from my classmates for openly admitting that as an aviator. But uh, absolutely, to answer your question, let's go oh, back sorry, to okay. the moon. Jessica, do you want to be on Mars? That you know, that's an incredible mission, right? I mean, it would take months, with seven months, I think, to a year, one way. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, 
as long as we have a ride back, I'm definitely. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> okay. Do you think it's a? Do you think there's a good likelihood that you'd be a Martian explorer? You know, we we have a lot of opportunities ahead of us, and I think you know focusing on the moon for now is is a big challenge on its own. And I'm excited about that opportunity, and then what that opportunity might lead to. And as we look forward to Mars, you know, I think building the technologies and the infrastructure, and getting you know into back into that mode of exploration in terms of exploring outside of Earth's orbit will get us where we need to go on the trajectory towards Mars. And I would love to be a part of that. However, I can contribute. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me that, that one reality of going to Mars is that you have to be able to make your own fuel to get there. Like, you can't just launch from Earth with all the fuel you'd need for Mars. It would just be too heavy. I have to think that a geologist would play a rather important role in that kind of space mining that propels you that far. Is, is it, Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the instruments on the Mars 2020 rover um, that will be launching this year will actually have an instrument that is going to start looking at the possibility of creating fuel from the resources that are available on the Martian surface. So that uh, rover will kind of help lead the way as we start to think about human exploration of Mars. Um, And it's certainly exciting to see uh, what those results will be. Jessica, you're one of six women in this class. Uh, You're also African-American. I wonder if you'd share a few thoughts on how NASA is handling diversity in the astronaut corps. Yeah, I think... You know, NASA has really put a priority on diversity, and I think for good reason. I think that uh, NASA has shown that it believes that it is important to have a diversity of backgrounds and experiences and that all kinds of skill sets really are necessary to accomplish the hard things that we've set out for ourselves. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of this group and, you know, be a, be a part, one puzzle piece in a, in a much bigger puzzle. Do you think enough little black girls dream of being astronauts? Uh, Do I think enough? Um, So I think that there certainly could be more. (laughs) And I do hope that all young girls, and especially young girls of color that are interested in STEM and interested in exploring space, feel empowered to do so. I know for me, uh, growing up, having role models and particularly ones that looked like me was important in, in making me believe in myself and feel like those kinds of dreams were possible. And I I just hope that young girls across the country uh, feel that way now. Who is your hero? I, growing up and, and now still, um, certainly looked up to Sally Ride and Mae Jemison as, as, as women who were able to break barriers and follow their dreams, accomplish the impossible. Um, tell me this, Matthew, as you were growing up in Wheat Ridge, who was your hero? I remember growing up and seeing launches, and I remember sitting sitting on the couch and watching on the old CRT, watching space shuttle launches, and just anybody to me that was flying the space shuttle was a hero, right? The fact that you could pilot something at such high velocities through the atmosphere, they were all heroes to me. Did you say CRT? Yeah, cathode ray tube. You're talking. You're talking um, about the kind of old school television you were watching these launches on. That's what that's a reference to. Oh uh, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, are you a role model? I hope so. I think that's one of my toughest jobs. I have two daughters, and uh, I try every day to be a good role model for them. I imagine you guys are doing a lot of interviews these days. What, what is a question you have not been asked? What is something you are eager to say and perhaps? feel you haven't been able to, Jessica? 
Um, that is a good question. I think uh, one question that I think is important is kind of why is spaceflight, human spaceflight, important in general? You know, why do we do this? Um, yeah, and there's always that question this? of like, you know, there's so many other things we could spend money on. There are problems right. here on Earth, you know, that kind of thing. Right, absolutely. And I think the answer to that is that human spaceflight really brings us together as a a whole world, you know, as as a human race. I think it's something that pushes the bounds of what we're capable of uh, as humans and it it's kind of at that edge of human capability that we are able to come together and really achieve really cool things. Matthew, uh is there something you haven't been asked that you'd like to share? Uh, I think I just like to convey just the reality of it. And when I was 10, we were going to go to the moon in 10 years. When I was 20, we were going to go to the moon in 10 years. And when I was 36 and I joined NASA in 2017, we were going to go to the moon in 10 years. The goal was 2028. And and that is how it felt when I got here, is that we're always going to go to the moon 10 years from now. But since I've been here, about a year ago, we, we I can't remember exactly, but we started we announced that we're going to do Artemis. And at first it felt like the announcement. It felt like the same thing. But now, like just having the pulse, the pulse of people here at Johnson Space Center, all the other NASA centers around the country, as we've gone from center to center, you can see a shift. Like we're going. We're going. These are the things we've dreamed of, and we're going back to the moon to set up the stepping stone. And I think it's really exciting for young kids because – you know, I I felt like I had missed the moon, right? And then the shuttle went away, and I felt like I'd missed the shuttle. You know, like as an aviator and a test pilot, the shuttle was the pinnacle, and I thought I had missed it. And I think this is really exciting for young kids because we're not just going to the moon to go and come back. We're going to stay. And you can feel the pulse and the energy at all the NASA centers that we're going to stay. And so kids in school now can realize that they're not going to miss it, that if they work hard in school – they'll have a chance to be a part of it and join us on the moon because we're building the infrastructure to go and to stay. They'll be watching on flat screens. Matthew. Yes, flat screens, LCDs. Plasmas are days of yore. <laughs> Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Matthew Dominic and Jessica Watkins are two of NASA's newest astronauts. They're both from Colorado. Eighty years ago this week, history was made at the South Pole. George Washington Gibbs Jr. became the first person of African descent to set foot in Antarctica. Gibbs' daughter, Leilani Henry, lives in the mountains southwest of Denver. And in 2012, she went to retrace his steps. We're going to listen back to our conversation just before her trek began. Her father had kept a travel journal and wrote about that historic day in 1940. But she says he never made much of it. Growing up, he talked about Antarctica. He gave presentations at Toastmasters and church, and, you know, he told us stories. Never did he mention that journal entry. What was in the journal entry? I understand. Did, did you have the journal with you? I do have the journal with me. Will you read the, uh, the critical passage? I will. You know, it was just a real a shock to find out that, that that was true. All right, so here it is, January 14th, 1940. Okay. Anchored this morning in the Bay of Wales at the South Pole and digging holes in the ice with picks and shovels. This was the only way of tying the ship up along the ice. There aren't any docks at all. Was I surprised? 
When the bear came up to the ice, close enough for me to get ashore, I was the first man aboard the ship to set foot in Little America and help tie her lines deep into the snow. I met Admiral Byrd. He shook my hand and welcomed me to Little America and for being the first Negro to set foot in Little America. Hmm. Let's uh, say that the bear is the name of the ship, I gather? The USS Bear, okay. yes. And Little America is a, is just a, a landing, a, a plot that had been claimed by the U.S.? Or uh, Yes, Admiral Byrd. Uh, this was Little America 3. So he had gone down there two other times, and that was what he decided to call the base camp where he settled. We should say that this is um, Richard E. Byrd, right? Yes, it's funny that your dad wouldn't have, like, bragged up and down about this when you were a kid. There are a couple things. He was a very humble person. He was a very quiet-spoken person. The other thing was that he was not the only black person on the ship, that his colleagues in the galley, they all worked together. And at that time, the Jim Crow laws were in place, and the, the ranks on the ship were the lowest ranks. So the people of color were the ones doing, you know, the grunt work, basically. And so I I think probably because he was not the only person on the ship, that maybe he just didn't think too much about it. What kind of work did your father do uh, on the ship, on the the, bear? Well, his title was, was mess attendant third class, and he did things like cut potatoes and onions and do dishes and wash floors and serve the officers. And do you have a sense for what he might have done once ashore in Antarctica? Yes, they were building the place where the ice party was going to stay for a year. So they they did things like digging, clearing, and uh, building up Um, I don't know if they actually made bricks, but they were using ice to build buildings. There were also buildings there that they were clearing away ice that maybe had built up or places that were inhabitable to make them habitable. Hmm. They also unloaded supplies. That was one of the primary duties was to get everything off the ship so that the ice party had what they needed. Now, we talked about the journal. You you read an entry for us. That journal kind of reappeared at one point. You didn't always know where it was. It's true. Uh, After he passed, my mother found the journals behind the dresser in the bedroom in plastic bags. Um, I had goosebumps when she called me and told me that she'd found them. So she expressed mailed them to me, and I spent a weekend reading the first journal. And it was just extraordinary to me. You want to read another entry for us? Sure. This is February 3rd, en route for Magnetic South Pole. I was up early this morning as usual. It has been a very beautiful day with occasional icebergs floating the ocean like small sailboats, which is really an asset to the Antarctic. If being a month on here wasn't so monotonous, I could really appreciate the Antarctic. This morning I woke up thinking it was Saturday, but last night we crossed the 80th meridian, and today is Sunday. Tonight I helped the ship's cook make an apple pie, and everyone liked it. It was my first since I made one for my girlfriend in Philadelphia. You know, what strikes me about that that passage is how disorienting 
the environment might have been and also just how, like, the sameness of it. It was. He talked about monotony several times. And they were working 14-hour days, basically cooking and cleaning and, and serving. The part that wasn't monotonous was the weather and coping with the winds and the dogs howling and... Then eventually when they got near, wondering where they were going to get frozen in. The dogs howling? Yes, there were 75 huskies aboard the USS Bear. And they were going to stay on the ice with the ice party. And they were the, um, going to pull the sleds. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that there would have been other African Americans on board uh, and on similar expeditions. And I wonder if you've connected with with them or with their families? They've all passed away. Unfortunately, the last uh, person that probably might even have been his friend passed away January of last year. And I found out about him living in Seattle around October of last year. Well, you're on your way to Antarctica, and I wonder what you're hoping to glean from the trip. I'm interested in understanding what it feels like to be down there, that I can connect with the land and the wildlife and the scientists there, and at least in some way understand what it might have been like. And I can't help but think that climate change comes into this, because that would be a difference. Yes, exactly. I want to compare everything. So comparing what it's like to be there now versus then in terms of the climate, Uh, what the scientists are saying about it now versus what they were saying about it then. For me, my my project is called We Are All Antarctica, and it's about past, present, and future. Do you think you'll be emotional seeing some of the same things your father did? It's a great question, Ryan, and I I don't know. I'm so, um, I'm I'm very excited (laughs) about going down. I don't know how I'm going to feel. Perhaps we can check in after you've returned. Leilani, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Leilani Henry of Conifer speaking with me in 2012 about her dad, George Washington Gibbs Jr. He was the first black person to set foot in Antarctica during a Navy expedition 80 years ago this week. And I just reconnected with Leilani Henry. Turns out Antarctica has become an all-consuming passion for her. She started writing a blog, and a publisher took note, and so she's writing a book for young adults based on the project she mentioned, We Are All Antarctica. She says it is scheduled to hit shelves next year. And coming full circle, Ted Scambos, a CU researcher we heard from last week who is just returning from Antarctica, is writing the foreword to the book. Okay, we'll end this show about adventures with a musical one. Perhaps you know our colleagues at Indie 1023 feature Colorado musicians each month in something called the Local 303. Well, one of the artists for this year is Nina De Freitas. I will cross the bridge to see How easily it forget me
music is in De Freitas' blood. Her father is a successful Brazilian singer, but she has taken a different journey with these deep vocals reminiscent of another Nina, Nina Simone. De Freitas doesn't just perform solo, she sings in the band Nina and the Hold Tight, and they recently dropped a new single. been hearing Colorado band Nina and the Hold Tight with their new single, Keeps Me Coming Back. The lead singer, Nina DeFreitas, is featured at CPR.org as part of the Local 303 by our colleagues at Indy 1023. That's our show for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.